joining us today at Bruegel for what promises to be a very exciting event on uh, energy assets in sub-Saharan Africa. My name is uh, Simon Tagliapietra, I'm an energy and climate fellow here at Bruegel, and I am particularly pleased to, to have you here and have this debate uh, today in Brussels because uh, the issue of energy assets in sub-Saharan Africa is, in my view, something that is really strategic for the long-term uh, development of Africa itself, but it also has a very strong impact on the outlook for Europe. As a matter of fact, energy assets is, as we all know, a key prerequisite for socio-economic development that cannot be solid and structural development without strong and solid access to energy. And uh, energy access continue to represent a key challenge in sub-Saharan Africa, where two out of three of the people living there do not have access to energy, and where every year 600,000 people die due to the consequences of indoor air pollution due to notably the use of biomass for cooking, but also for, uh, for lighting. Overcoming the energy access barrier in sub-Saharan Africa therefore represents probably the crucial step to allow the unleash of the socio-economic development of the subcontinent. Over the last two years, in Europe, there was a growing attention to the Africa development overall as a consequence of the migration crisis, and several initiatives have been launched, such as the EU External Investment Plan by the European Commission, the Marshall Plan with Africa initiative of the German presidency of the G20, all these initiatives with a strong emphasis on energy and energy assets. With this event, we would like to discuss not only the outlook for energy assets in sub-Saharan Africa, but also the potential role that Europe might eventually play in fostering energy assets and energy development in Africa. To do so, we will be guided by our distinguished uh, panelists. The first panelist, the first speaker of the day will be Laura Cozzi, the head of the World Energy Outlook Demand Division at the, World Energy, at the International Energy Agency in Paris. Back in 2040, the Energy Agency published a major report on African energy, which really sparked a debate about uh, this issue for the first time, probably. And uh, in two weeks' time, the International Energy Agency will publish a new special report of the World Energy Outlook devoted to energy and development. So we are really grateful to Laura to be here today with us in order to share some of the insights of this very important exercise. The panel discussion will then see the interventions of Lapo Pistelli, the Executive Vice President of uh, ENI, the Italian international energy company that probably has engaged the most over the last decades on Africa. We will then have the intervention of Lex Urderman from the uh, World Bank and finally from San Bilal, the Head of Trade and Investment and Finance Program at the European Centre for Development Policy Management. Without much further ado, I would then immediately give the floor to Laura for her kickoff presentation. Laura, the floor is yours. 
first of all, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are under the rain of Brussels today, but it shouldn't still uh, uh, hamper us from having a very, very lively and good discussion on the continent that is certainly the most lively in terms of what's happening uh, on energy nowadays. Uh, first of all, big thanks to, to Bruegel for, uh, uh, for having uh, initiated this, uh, um, this conference. Uh, as Simone mentioned, the timing is uh, uh, maybe a bit uh, difficult for me because uh, we are actually launching uh, our report in two weeks of time uh, in Rome. Um, the choice of Rome is not, uh, is not a coincidence. Uh, it's really, I think, a testimony of what Italy uh, at the highest level uh, is trying to do to put Africa at the center of the attention at uh, uh, every political debate. Uh, and we have been so decided to have, uh, in fact, it's the first time that the IEA launches uh, a publication, uh, does the global launch, uh, the global launch in Italy. So it's really a double testimony of, of the importance that the G this G G7 presidency has put, has put on Africa and equally, uh, what uh, Italian industries on energy have been doing uh, in Africa for a, for a very long time. Certainly, uh, ENI with a, a very long-standing tradition as well as uh, Enel. So, without any, uh, any further ado, what I will do now, I will show you a number of slides that are uh, mostly publicly available, but what I will try to do is to give you the glimpse uh, of all the new things that we will be saying uh, in a couple of weeks of time, without trying to break in the embargo <laughs> that I have still to, to respect. So it's going to be a bit of a fine exercise. Um, but you are Italian, flexible. So you <laughs> I will try to be as flexible as possible. Um, a, few, a few things to put the situation in a context. Uh, we're talking about a continent that has seen one of the highest growth rates globally uh, since 2000, so an average of around 5% GDP growth since 2000. The economy has doubled in, in Africa. Uh, still, uh, the flip side of the story is that you still have half of the population that is living in extreme poverty. Um, over the past two years, uh, as many of the countries are still very reliant on commodity, on commodity to have GDP growth. You have seen a very sluggish GDP growth in most of the continent, with a few exceptions. So that the IMF is, is in fact starting to talk about a two-tier Africa, two different speeds. Now, the most resilient country to growth were the one that did not have too much reliant commodity uh, economies. It's a region that uh, is very unbalanced for a number of, of reasons. Uh, it has 30% of the global population, and it uses only 4% of global energy demand. And of this global energy demand, most of it is traditional biomass. I will come back to this. This is very, very unusual. It's the only continent in the world that has this type of peculiarity in energy use. Infrastructure and electricity infrastructure, is, I'm pleased that there is a World Bank uh, fellow uh, speaker here today, has been considered by enterprises in Africa as the single most important reason for not cause of fa fastest, fastest growth. It comes before red tape, it comes before bad governance. So electricity access and electricity reliability is considered one of the key break to industrial growth 
in Africa. Why is that? Let's put it in a very simple way. On average, in each African country, you have two hours a day in which the, the electricity goes off. Of course, you don't know at what time it goes off. You just know it will go off at some point. So if you're planning for industrial production, if you're planning for any uh, activity, you actually need to do, first of one very important thing, you need to have a, di a digital generator for backup. So 50% of industry in Africa, small cottage industries up to the large ones, they do have on-site digital diesel generators. Now, digital generators are excellent because they uh, actually manage for you to keep on producing, but they do something else. Uh, now we are lucky we are in a very low oil price situation, and still with this very low oil price situation, you would be producing electricity at three, four, five times the cost of the cheapest option. So you're actually in a <coughs> continent that is the poorest producing the most expensive electricity you, you can. So you're using, as my executive director says, you're using channel, channel number five to actually fuel your economy. It doesn't make much sense. Another huge part of the story is the following. Uh, Africa is the continent with the largest energy resources. So it's a big contradiction that the continent with the larger resources, and when I talk about energy resources, everything, there is a lot of oil, there is a lot of gas, there is plenty of renewables, is the continent with the least energy use. Absurd. Finally, one very key point, because to change the situation, you need investment. So how much money is Africa attracting in terms of investment uh, in energy today? <coughs> Globally, we're spending around 1.6 trillion, 1.6 trillion every year on energy, and Africa attracts around 1% of it. In fact, if you look at Sub-Saharan Africa alone, it's much less than that. On one hand, it's a bad news. On the other hand, it's very easy to scale up. So you start from a very low, low base, we can do and do things pretty quickly. Now here I start the fine exercise. Uh, those are all data. They show you uh, access by access electricity rate <coughs> and the tremendous population growth that has happened since, uh, since 2000. Until 2013, we basically were seeing that despite efforts in many countries, electrification rate did not keep up with population growth. So the number of people without access to electricity, actually they were increasing. Despite efforts, the number of people without access to electricity have been increasing constantly since 2000, every year, until, 2000, until 2013. Now, in the new report that we'll be launching on the, on the 19th, we're gonna give a rather good news. Since 2013, 2014, 15, and 16, for the first time, we are seeing within the continent to see every year, electrification efforts have been more than compensating for population growth. Is it happening everywhere? No, we see countries that are moving fast. It's Gambia, it's Ethiopia, it's Kenya. Uh, there are pockets where things are moving. <coughs> and they're moving through a combination of, of things is not one unique way forward. In some cases, it's grid expansion that is uh, providing electricity access. In some other cases, we are seeing technological uh, cost reduction, especially for solar and wind, to being really the key to unlock uh, faster electrification rates. 
So there is no one size fits, fits all, and this is for Africa always the case, but in, in this case, the story is not different uh, at all. So if you want to look at uh, the energy mix, this is how it looks today. Uh, you have a bit of all, uh, of all sources, and all of them will grow through 2040. I want to spend a couple of minutes to talk about this. So here it's a continent where biomass is the mainstay <coughs> of energy use. There is no other continent on the planet for which this is the case. Most of, bi of this biomass is not the biomass that we normally think of. It's not uh, uh, wood pellets uh, or something very advanced. It's really very poor, uh, very poor type of biomass. Um, we are finding that uh, one and a half hour a day is spent by families to go actually go out and collect this biomass. This is mostly women doing this. Uh, and on average, we are also seeing that the time spent for women to cook goes, for the family, goes between three and four hours a day. So you put together and you have, on average, a woman in a family that is spending five and a half hours of her time that is related to energy activities. So for cooking, is very basic need. Now, if we were able to provide solutions for this, solutions for cooking, and solutions for cooking is we find in many cases is LPG. This would cut tremendously the time that women spend to those, those activities, and they could be devoted to do other things, other productive uses. So women are and need to be very key and central to everything that is related to providing access to households. They hold the key to success stories. This is very clear. Wherever there has been a success story on clean cooking, it has involved women engagement. So going forward, we see natural gas increasing. We see oil increasing, coal increasing, increasing modestly, renewables increasing tremendously. I'd like to spend two words on oil. If you take out of that graph uh, the amount of use that is in uh, South Africa and Nigeria, so two countries out of the entire continent, you put all the rest all together, you have still more than 650 million people that you're talking about, and they consume less than the total use of the Netherlands today. What does that mean? It means that this is a true break in moving things around. You have a key barrier in transporting things. So mobilization, transport and energy needs are really another key factor. If you look at the power sector, this is really um, the area where, uh, where things need to, to be scaled up and we expect to be scaled up pretty quickly. A tripling over the next uh, uh, 25 years on, of, uh, of, installed, of installed capacity. And very clearly here you see what are the two winners. It's a combination of uh, renewables on the one hand and of natural gas on the other. This would put Africa to be the first continent that, that has actually managed to do development not through a typically coal-based pattern. The US has gone through their development path using coal. UK, Germany, a lot of Europe has done that using coal. India, we will see, 
China has certainly done that doing coal. We have here a continent that can really have a completely different energy and development history. Is this because we think coal is bad? No, we are saying here that it makes economic sense. We are entering a period of around five to 10 years in which natural gas, especially thanks to LNG, will have very low prices for a significant amount of time. It opens up opportunities to have new gas-fired generations coupled with industrial uses uh, that may really be uh, presenting interesting development opportunities. On the other hand, we are seeing the emergency of new business models that are really opening up things that already only two, three years ago were not imaginable. What are those new business models? And what is happening? So there is a combination of a couple of new things. On one hand is technology cost reduction really of the energy sector. So is, uh, is solar, is mini grids, uh, batteries that are becoming cheaper. But on the other hand, is beyond the energy sector. It really has to do with digital technologies and mobile phones. So there are, globally we find, 200 million people that live above the poverty line, 200 million people that live above the poverty line but don't have access to electricity. But they do have an ability to pay. And most of those actually have a mobile phone. Most of those 200 million people have a mobile phone. There is now a niche that is opening up with what we call pay as you go. Through mobile phones, actually those people are able to pay only when they consume energy and only when they can pay. So you have on one hand the cost of decentralized solution going down, an opening up of mobile phone technologies, and the third thing that is becoming is still a bit niche but is opening up more, we can actually measure very, very finely at the nearly minute by minute, seconds by second to understand what a household needs. When is it using energy and for what? So uh, digital companies are storing this information and having a pattern of exactly which kind of electricity uh, and energy use are needed. Now, those trilogy can really open up going forward very quick electrification area in rural areas where normally grid extension that is planned by the governments would come much later. This combined, I go back to the cheap gas that we will be seeing for some time, is really is a golden opportunity. It is a golden opportunity to be used. Is the pattern to universal electricity access in those countries the same everywhere? No. So um, for those of you who are in this, uh, uh, working in this field for many years, you will know that there are uh, always two tensions. One on people that say you have to use on-grid, forget about off-grid. And in fact, we need to understand very clearly that going forward, uh, those two things cannot be enemies. They need to be husband and wife and hopefully get along very well together. And it may be that in certain countries like Nigeria, on-grid extension makes more sense because it's a very densely populated area, because there are available resources of gas that needs to be used and not thrown away, and it just makes sense for the geographical situation that on-grid uh, is used. However, there will be still pockets of rural areas in Nigeria where off-grid solutions will make the most economic sense. If you travel to Ethiopia, the story is very different. 
it's half densely populated as, uh, as Nigeria, the resource availability is completely different. There, it makes much more sense uh, a combination where we'll be more towards on-grid, uh, off-grid solution and decentralized solution with still some grid option that will make sense. So the two really have to go hand in hand if we want to see a type of quick development uh, going, going forward. Now, the other second thing that I will not show a slide about that. Uh, in, 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 these, uh, in these debates, uh, there is always a big contrast, especially if you talk uh, with people in, uh, uh, in the realm of um, sustainable development goals, that providing access to uh, electricity and energy is all very good, but uh, they don't say it very loud, but let's wait a second because we may have actually a problem with climate change. So, do we really have an incentive in providing access so quickly? Well, the answer is very, very clear. The two things don't, are not in contradictions. So our analysis, I think if there is one thing that we will be saying very clearly on the 19th of November, of October, is the following. The two things are not in contradiction. And we will go into much more detail on the 19th to explain why, but the finding is clear. Even if you, in fact, if you provide access to everyone by 2030, clean access, not clean, energy access, uh, electricity, and cooking by 2030, the impact on greenhouse gas emissions is zero, is zero. We can elaborate further if you wish so, and I can tell you a bit more about this, but I think this is a very important finding, and there are two myths that have really to be debunked. It's not an on-grid, off-grid fight, Forget about that, they have to go hand in hand. And second, there is not climate change versus energy access fight. I'll go very quickly towards, towards the end. The investment, and I understand we will have uh, uh, a bit more later on with, the, with, with a few other speakers. <clears throat> Over the past 15 years, uh, we have seen flow of investment of around $60 billion a year uh, flowing through Africa. A lot of those, two-thirds of that, of those were foreign direct investments that were mostly for exports. So uh, this is going to Africa, use resources, mostly for exports. Um, it was not all companies. It was not all countries. But the majority of, of this type of uh, uh, investment environment that was in Africa was pretty clear. More recently, from the year 2010 onwards, there has been a large wave of Chinese investments going into the continent that have become, in energy, certainly the largest investors. The second, I'm very proud to say, being Italian, that is Italy, being the second largest investors in, in energy uh, in, uh, uh, in Africa. But things have, in terms of two things, they have three things they have to change. First, investment needs to be scaled up very significantly, number one. You need roughly to double what has been done for the past 15 years. So the first thing that you need to find out is how do we make sure that we double the amount of investment flowing every year. The second is that a lot of these investments have to be made for energy use that is in the continent, not elsewhere. It doesn't mean that the part for export is shrinking. It's in fact remaining very similar to what uh, uh, has been in the past. But the ratio of the two things have to change. It means that the uh, investment type of uh, uh, opportunities has 
the, the type of investment that you're doing has, has to change quite significantly. So concluding, maybe just um, two, to put together three, four thoughts uh, to, leave, to leave with you and maybe to spark a bit of, uh, of the debate. I really believe that we are in a pretty unique uh, situation today. We have the convergence of uh, a few things. On the one hand, we have signed sustainable development goals in 2015, and there is a new political momentum that really can push energy access. Energy access has gone back up in the policy agenda. So a political push on one hand. On the second hand, we are seeing on the energy side, technology innovation and cost reduction that is unprecedented. So there is an opportunity out there that can be taken for opening up, especially in rural areas, that was, has never been there before. And the third point, we are seeing most likely ahead of us for a few years, low natural gas prices. The combination of these three things is really opening up options. We shouldn't leave it aside. It's a, it's a, it's a golden opportunity. Second point, uh, I think really the opportunity to see Africa following a completely different development path that uh, we have been seeing uh, for many other continents is very concrete in front of us and it makes economic sense. The third point, a complete change in paradigm, especially for what concerns cooking and putting women at the center of all this is crucial. This links not only into gender, but ties into growth opportunities for the continent. You would be unleashing millions of hours of work with an empowerment of a key part of the society. Fourth point that I would like you to leave this room uh, at least looking forward on the 19th in a couple of weeks to, to the results of the, of the report, no contradiction whatsoever between climate and energy access. And I would like to conclude here. Thank you very much to all of you. Well, thank you very much, Laura, for this very insightful presentation, but uh, particularly thank for having celebrated the marriage of on-grid and off-grid solutions in Africa, because really the debate is poisoned sometimes. Uh, there is really uh, somehow a very strong fight, which actually doesn't make sense if we look at the uh, kind of requirements of energy for the future, it's clear that there is room for accommodate both the, uh, the solutions. So thank you very much for making also clarity about this very important uh, point. Now, I would like to turn the floor to Lapo Pistelli, because as uh, Laura mentioned, the role of private investments will be key, particularly as far as uh, the energy that will then be uh, consumed domestically in sub-Saharan Africa. So since any is present in Africa since basically the, the 1950, uh, it, I would be really interested in understanding how you see the energy challenges of Africa, of sub-Saharan Africa, and how you see the, the opportunities also for European companies in the field. The floor is yours. 
Thank you, Simone. I would like to thank all of you for the invitation and for being here this morning. Uh, thank you to Laura, because my job is very easy. Uh, I, I do agree on 100 uh, percent, word by word, of what she said. Uh, we will have the time and the chance to debate again in Rome uh, the 19th of October. Uh, I thank her because she put very clearly on the table the numbers of the equation, and, uh, and that's the equation. Um, so I would like, first of all, to recap uh, some of the uh, key conclusions. Uh, on the one hand, uh, um, the, the contradiction. Uh, the contradiction means uh, uh, a continent which uh, uh, has the hugest reserves, conventional and non-conventional, um, to put in crude numbers, uh, we are talking about uh, uh, 126 billion barrel of equi oil equivalent of oil and 96 of gas, and we are talking about proven reserves, not taking into consideration potential discoveries. So not regarding uh, technological breakthrough with this model, Africa could rely on its own resources for the next three uh, centuries. Uh, on the other hand, an unsustainable mix. Unsustainable mix, because this 48% on biomasses, uh, the 23% uh, about relying on oil, and the less than 2% hydro and renewables is totally unsustainable. For, 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 uh, from every perspective you can adopt, it's unsustainable. Um, on the other hand, I would like to thank uh, Bruegel for the debate because what's happening about Africa uh, is really a key debate because now we are debating about energy, but I mean, it's very obvious that there is a trigger between uh, what the EU is doing in terms of migration, uh, giving access to energy in terms of trying to address the root causes, one of the root causes of migration, how as a continent, as Europeans, we are engaged vis-a-vis -vis Africa. I keep repeating that if you look at the map, you will see that Africa has water south, east, west, and Europe north. So it's quite clear that we have a common destiny. The two continents have a common destiny. Um, and, and this huge uh, contradiction between uh, being the continent of the huge reserves, conventional and non-conventional, and having 650 million people with no access to energy, and uh, the consumption per, per capita is unbelievable because it's one-third of a Chinese, one-fifth of a European, and one-tenth of an American as an average. And we are talking as an average. So uh, what about us, uh, to, 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 to put it very simple? As Simone said, Eni uh, moved his first steps in Africa in the 50s. So uh, looking at numbers today among the uh, international company, among the IOCs, any is the most African of all IOCs in the world uh, because in terms of uh, production and in terms of reserve, 50% of what we are doing is done in Africa. Uh, we are the first for equity with one million barrel oil equivalent a day and we have there three billions uh, barrel equivalent uh, of proven reserves. But what is more is that we are in 16 countries, we are expanding our presence, and uh, uh, because we are talking about investment, according to OECD, uh, in the year 2015 and 2016, uh, ENI was the third global largest investor in the world as a private company, but the first European, because the first company was a Chinese one, the second company was uh, uh, coming from uh, United Arab Emirates, and the third one was ENI. 
And in the next four years, we are just planning uh, 20 billion dollars investment. So I, I guess that this range, this ranking, uh, will remain uh, even in the in the in the in the next four years. We started in the northern strip of Africa, so we are not talking about sub-Saharan. And you can see that after 50 or 60 years of presence of VNI, <coughs> Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, and, and, and Egypt, uh, uh, access to energy, I mean, is globally uh, spread, notwithstanding with the demographic trends. But the key challenge is sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we are there either in the uh, south part of the continent, Mozambique, uh, the biggest giant discovery of gas over the last 20, 10 years in the world. In the West Africa, Angola, Nigeria, Congo, uh, Gabon, Ivory Coast, uh, uh, just to mention some, some countries, and in the east margin, in the, in, in the, in the east part of Africa. So uh, what to do? Because I agree on the, on the recipes that Laura gave. First of all, that's a political choice. You can uh, uh, look for resources develop resources and they take the resources away. Or you can leave it to the domestic market. You can sell domestically. This, this has been historically the, the, the political choice that uh, ENI did since the, since the 50s. It's clear that uh, you are engaged in a long-term relation because first of all, you have to develop a domestic market. You have to develop the infrastructure, uh, the rules, the greed, whatever. Uh, but I'm, let's say, pretty proud to say that uh, ignoring for a while the North Africa, the northern part of Africa, uh, we are providing 60% uh, uh, of the energy, just to give you two numbers, uh, of energy to Congo. It's 100% in Libya and Egypt, but it's 60% in, in Congo, and 20% to countries which are really engaging, like Nigeria. And I fully agree on the, on the mix that uh, uh, Laura was mentioning. So it's clear, it's clear that you have to give access to energy to a remote rural area in the continent. It's not about connecting a grid. No one will invest 3,000 kilometers to, to connect a small village. That's about off-grid and renewables. But you want, if you want to tackle the issue of big mega cities, Lagos, Abidjan, Abuja, uh, it's about mixing gas to power in those countries that, that have plenty of power, of gas, uh, and renewables, hybrid project. This is, this is going to be the future. And this is going to be the, 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 the um, uh, excellent mix uh, in order to give access to energy. Uh, and I would like also to, uh, to emphasize that especially in those countries, I mean, you, you, can't, you cannot pick up and choose the energy you want the source you want. It's about the, the geography of sources available. So put the case that you have uh, not uh, natural gas alone like you have in Mozambique. And Mozambique is going to become in the next 20, 25 years the Qatar of, uh, of East Africa. Uh, just as we discover 85 TCF of gas, uh, which is huge. Uh, and we sanction in June a project, $6 billion, only to develop the first five TCF of gas. So it's clear that Mozambique will become one of the hub, not only for East Africa, but also to export gas in this Indian subcontinent and addressing markets which are growing up fastly in terms of demography and economic growth. But if you go to Nigeria, to give an example, you have associated gas. Gas comes with oil. 
So you have an option. You can flare it, and if you flare it, you pollute environment, or you can go to a gas to power and monetize it, save in terms of emission, and give access to power uh, to the people living in megacities. So it, it's common sense. It's wisdom. And we, we, this, this is what we are doing. Uh, just the case of Nigeria, uh, we have one uh, uh, power unit, which is Occupy One, uh, who is giving 480 megawatt, uh, is the first, is the first uh, um, uh, power unit to turn on in case of black shutdown, and the last one to turn, out, to turn off. And we are going to double it uh, next year. So other 480 uh, 80 megawatt is an investment of around $700 million. And we are doing because we do believe that this is the only way to address the root causes of uh, giving, uh, about giving energy as a basic human right, and also to, uh, to let's say, bring a brick, uh, which is a cornerstone for stable economic growth. Because what Laura was mentioning about the blackout, yes, it's, sometimes with a diesel generator, you can make a sort of backup. But we are talking about Africa today. But if you move to a continent where the economic growth is, is I mean, is more stable, uh, Pakistan instead of Bangladesh, you have sometimes uh, blackouts which are lasting seven hours. And so that, that is, that's becoming, in the last five, six years, a political issue uh, uh, about which government uh, lose or win elections. Because you, you can't run any economic activity with an unpredictable uh, un, uh, blackout which can last uh, five hours, six hours, seven hours. So in Africa, we are still lagging behind. So uh, the blackout may be shorter and is not affecting so dramatically economic activities. But if you want to boost the economy, you need to, uh, to grant a stable and, not, uh, and, and reliable, and reliable uh, uh, energy access for everybody, for domestic consumption and for economic growth. So um, uh, to um, close my, my perspective, I will put it very simple. Um, you have three main actors. Uh, you have private sector. Uh, you have, because we are debating here in Brussels, uh, multilateral and, and uh, international institutions. You have the European Union, uh, to put it very simple, and you have member states. And I think it's very clear today in the debate that no one of the three alone can address the challenge. No one alone can address the challenge. It's not about the European Commission providing a big program with no participation of the private sector. It's not about the uh, let's say, uh, commendable and, and, and uh, honorable effort by single member states. And it's not about uh, the, the, the private sector alone. So it's about combining together the effort. So what I would like to tell, uh, to tell you and to address, let's say, symbolically, to those who are representing the European institutions and the uh, financial institutions is that, I mean, we are acting as a private sector alone. Uh, just to give an example, when we raised the six billions to sanction the project to Mozambique, there was about knocking at the door, finally, of 15 different international commercial banks and five export credit agencies, with no single multilateral institutions backing such a project. Because everybody's talking about uh, giving access to energy to Africa, but when you talk about uh, country A or country B, everybody's saying, look, it's fragile, it's not reliable, how can you securitize the payment? And so you're alone to act. That's it. 
So if we want to be consistent with what we are saying in Europe and the private sector that I'm, let's say, here representing, we are ready, we are on board, it's about being consistent with what we are writing in political documents. So to have the financial sector supporting those who are risking hundreds of millions of dollars investing in Africa, investing in countries where the payment system is fragile, where only in East Africa the uh, phone monetics is well developed, not in, West, not, in, not in West Africa. In some of the debate in West Africa, energy in the, in the domestic debate is considered for free. I just connect to what I'm finding and that's for free. And if you want to let the people pay for the energy, you're going to risk your, your, your post, your, your job in Parliament. Uh, so, I mean, it's a huge debate, but I think we are ready, and we would like to have member states and financial institutions supporting all of us. Because I think that, as I said before, it's a destiny. It's a common fate. Let me uh, end the conversation with a, with a number. Uh, I started with geography, and I will end up with demography. In 1950, Europe has a population, had a population which, which was two times the African population. We were the double. And these are numbers, these are facts, figures. In 2002, the population of Africa and the population of EU was the same exactly. In 2050, according to the average scenario of UN demographics, uh, Africa will be three times the population of Europe. Or we take seriously that we have a common faith together, and it's not about uh, stopping the wind with our hands, uh, or we are going to lose the challenge. So I think that we are on board. We are ready to, to carry on our responsibility as we did in the last 50 years. But we need that member states, European institutions, uh, private companies, those who are, I mean, who are strong enough uh, to, to carry on responsibility, and the financial sector need to act together. That's it. Thank you. Well, I would say message received. Uh, thank you very much for for such a strong push, which I think is exactly what one should expect from debate, uh, debates as this one in Brussels, where sometimes you really need to provide a little bit of more energy into the, what policymakers are really uh, elaborating, uh, reflecting on, but then actually doing, right? So there is often a gap. So it's uh, very good to, to have this kind of stimulus. Lex, let me then turn to you, since uh, now we discussed widely the, the, the outlook for energy assets. We understand that RSEP seems to be the, the, the tandem of renewables on the one end and gas on the other, but what can you, as a World Bank group, do to support investors like LAPO and many others acting in Africa? What me can you do? Me personally, I, well. have, a, I have a big wallet. <laughs> what can you do to help the companies there to, to do what they have to do? to foster energy assets. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Simone, and uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, let me thank you all for inviting me to this uh, prestigious institution. I've been asked to um, reflect on the barriers to the development of energy investments in Sub-Saharan Africa and, and where international financial institutions can provide a sensible contribution. And it's, it's just a, a little piece of the puzzle uh, of, of this debate this morning. But I hope it's, it helps to, to discuss things, um, things further. 
Um, is this way? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So let's let's start with the question: Why is the power supply in in Africa such a persistent question? And we think that there are two two root causes. One uh, is is the the cause that Laura already mentioned: that electricity provision is a key condition for economic growth anywhere, also in Africa. And secondly, that governments have historically financed the sector in the region and more private sector investment is required to, to meet the needs. And sub-Saharan African countries lag behind in, in various ways. Um, although the access to electricity has increased significantly over the last uh, 15 years, overall access rates remain much lower than, than in the rest of the world. Reliability remains inadequate which the huge cost required to invest in, in backup generation. And because of all that, most electricity tariffs remain high compared to, to other continents, while the remaining, um, well, while they remain below the, the cost of generation in many cases, and hence significant subsidies are required in many countries, which have a crippling effect. So our clients, in sub-Saharan Africa, they face a number of structural factors that prevent the optimal development of the markets. And if we take Ghana as an example and compare that with uh, the state of Texas in the United States, Ghana is, is one of the most developed countries with regard to electricity in, in West Africa with a 75% access rate, uh, which is more than Nigeria. It has abundant hydropower resources, as well as natural gas and oil. Population is similar to that of Texas, and yet the power system is 34 times smaller than that of Texas. Other sub-Saharan African countries have even smaller systems. Now, you probably all, you're probably all aware that economies of scale are very significant in, in electricity supply. On the generation side, for the same generating technology, capex and opex per unit decrease significantly with, with the size. But there's also the fact that certain, certain generation technologies can only be deployed at a larger scale. On the transmission and distribution side, the cost per unit um, decreases with the density of consumption. And in this respect, Sub-Saharan Africa is impacted by the low income per capita, per capita the large rural population, uh, and also by, with, with cities that are spread out. And then there are certain fuels that require a dedicated infrastructure, such as natural gas, that can only be economic past a certain threshold. In addition, in about every single sub-Saharan African country, we can observe to a more or lesser degree Poor investment planning, inadequate maintenance, inefficiencies in operations, poor commercial performance by utilities with tariffs below cost recovery, making the utilities insolvent, and corruption, which contributes to any of these factors above. So where, where does the World Bank uh, try to make a contribution in the energy sector in Africa. Um, we work along the whole value chain. 
We provide knowledge, we convene partnerships, and we leverage our own limited resources and financial instruments to crowd in commercial and, and private financing. And we expand South House Corporation along the value chain. So as an example, in uh, fiscal year 14, we spent about eight and a half billion along the energy value chain. Now, is that enough to meet sustainable development goals? Not by far. And that's why we have a strategy to, to leverage even more commercial and private financing uh, on, on top of what we can uh, invest uh, and, and provide as, as lending ourselves. So, some of the, the instruments that we use doing that <coughs> include uh, sector reforms to improve the investment climate. Uh, we try to enhance institutional capacity to govern the sector. We help to structure bankable projects. We provide risk guarantees, both political risk guarantees and commercial risk guarantees to uh, take away some of the, the risks around payment, uh, for example. We lend to both the public and the private sector. And we take equity participations on a project level, but also directly in, in private sector. So let's not forget about the off-grid solutions. Um, over the past few years, there's been a lot of improvement in the quality of solutions that, that are provided and in lowering the cost of making those solutions available. And this is starting to make a large impact in, in rural areas. And yet, the access to finance, and in this case it's mostly microfinance, remains the biggest barrier to growth. So let me uh, stop my intervention here, and happy to, to address other questions in the, in the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Lex. And I think it's now the turn of Sun to uh, share with us some of the pre preliminary results of a study that is being uh, carried out, and I think it will be presented tomorrow as a draft, right? on what the European institutions uh, are doing to, to, to support energy, energy development in Africa. So since we, particularly in Brussels, heard a lot about the external investment plan and many other initiatives ongoing, I'm very curious to, to learn from you how do you see these, uh, these initiatives going. Thank you very much to be here with us. Well, thank you very much also. I have a PowerPoint presentation. I don't know if it will put come up. But uh, it is, thank you very much for the opportunity uh, of sharing some of our insights. It was indeed the, the intention to, to try to provide an overview of what the EU is doing. turns out to be rather impossible because there are so many different instruments and so many different initiatives that uh, it, it is quite difficult. So we had to try to, to pick up uh, some of the issues and try to identify uh, what is the EU doing and, and uh, whether it is uh, effective or, or not, or tr at least try to adjust uh, some of its uh, approaches in, in order to, to increase its efficiency. I think the first point to keep in mind is that the, the EU uh, and its member states is the largest 
donor in, in general and also the largest donor in terms of uh, uh, energy uh, uh, support. So it has in, in itself then the role that is going to play is, is really important. And out of this uh, support that is provided to energy, a third uh, is dedicated to, to Africa and, and, and about six, uh, a bit more than a six, is going to sub-Sahara Africa. Uh, so while Africa is <coughs> uh, an important uh, challenge, it is not the main uh, focus of, uh, uh, of Europe. And in fact, out of the 10 largest uh, ODA recipients of, uh, of EU aid, uh, there is only uh, eight of them uh, have an electrification rate of higher than 90%. Uh, and if, if I had the presentation, I could show, but it doesn't matter. Uh, but if we look at the, in Africa also about the rate of electrification and, and the level of uh, ODA that is provided, we see that, in fact, more ODA per capita is going to countries that, have, uh, that tend to have a higher rate of uh, electrification than, than a lower rate one. Uh, this is not to, to blame, in fact, because we, we can, of course, imagine that countries that require a lot of power generation and some very costly investments, you will have more ODA that is going to, to, to these uh, elements. But if the purpose is to try to, accept, to, to foster access to electricity, in particular to address the issue that uh, has been mentioned before about uh, providing access to electricity to the population, the large population in Africa that does not have access, uh, then we you know, when perhaps not putting all the resources or sufficiently emphasis where we should put it. Having said that, I would like to, to keep in mind that there are basically two not necessarily incompatible but slightly different objectives when you want to focus access to energy. Uh, one is for trying to stimulate economic growth and, and, and to provide economic transformation and increase the productivity. If there is no access to electricity, uh, we talked about... Um, uh, about the blockouts and, 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 and not, uh, not sufficient access to electricity for uh, companies that are trying to uh, uh, that are trying to to do productive activities that is a, in itself a huge impediment and I think that's probably that's the the element that has the strongest potential to stimulate uh, development in the long run uh, to have a productive uh, process if uh, if the, uh, uh, however, the other dimension of the uh, uh, of the access to energy is to provide to improve the livelihood, and that has been mentioned is probably more off-grid type of uh, uh, of access and help enhance the livelihood of the people, which has an important dimension of human rights and quality of life, which has also, uh, as was uh, uh, mentioned. Uh, by Laura, the, the capacity to perhaps also liberate times from, from uh, domestic activities for more productive activities. That's why we're saying the two dimensions are not opposed to one another. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they do provide uh, uh, perhaps the objectives is slightly different and also the tools that, that we're having. Th this was the map that was showing the, the rate of electricity. So what is the EU doing in terms of financing uh, for energy, it's using mainly two types of, uh, of instruments. One is the more traditional grants, the other one is, is the blending. And, and the focus of our work has been more on, on the blending and trying to see how uh, the EU grants can leverage loans and, uh, and private uh, finance. Uh, but it is important to remember that this is only one of the instruments that, that exist. 
Uh, and there are a number of financial instruments that have been uh, uh, developed at the EU level, uh, the African Investment Facility, uh, Electrify, the, and, and you, you have now the new setup with the uh, external investment uh, external investment plan, sorry, with the European Fund for Sustainable Development, uh, that is providing uh, huge uh, opportunities in the future for financing uh, sustainable energy with the creation of a specific investment window that will be de dedicated to to that objective uh, for both the neighborhoods and, and the Africa policy. But the EIB, the EBRD, uh, the European DFIs uh, are also very active, uh, all very active in, in the role of in supporting uh, financing energy. Then there are other initiatives that uh, lead to promoting technical assistance, uh, try to enhance the quality of the projects, so a bit along the lines also of, in fact, mimicking to some extent what the World Bank and IFC are also uh, uh, trying to do with the financing instrument on the one hand and providing technical assistance in terms of uh, uh, enhancing the quality of the projects that are, that are available. Uh, uh, RISIP is, is, is a good example for that, or the technical assistance facility. Uh, uh, for uh, sustainable energy for all is another example of, uh, of such support, but also going beyond the specific uh, support to provide uh, better quality projects, but also to try to improve the regulatory environment uh, and the support. Uh, and, and that leads to the, the third dimension, is that you cannot have sustainable investment in energy in a, if the investment environment is not a conducive one. Uh, and if the regulation of electricity market and if the, the basic regulation that is required for uh, a, a market to, to exist is not in place. So uh, there is a need to have a combined approach and to go beyond the simple uh, uh, project-based uh, approach that is there. What do we see is uh, perhaps some, some generic observations that, that, that we had when we, we look at what the EU is doing is that uh, it has a very ambitious uh, uh, energy-related objectives uh, and has a lot of financial instruments that are uh, in place. So in, in that sense, it is, you know, taking... Um, uh, it, it is realizing the stake of the, of the challenge ahead and also the opportunities that exist. Uh, but beyond the specific project results, there is in fact very little information of uh, what is really the impact and what are the, the results of all these different uh, activities. So th there is, uh, I think, a, a need for the EU uh, uh, and the Commission in particular to better consolidate some of the you know, the results and the achievements of the various instruments to be able to, to show what they are doing and what is, the, what is the impact of what they are doing. And the second elements that we see in discussing also with, these, uh, uh, with the managers of the various uh, financing instruments is that the problem is not the number of projects. The problem is sometimes the quality of the, of the projects and the financial means that, that exist to, to finance these, uh, these good projects. So that seems to suggest that, in fact, uh, if there is more technical assistance that is provided, there is more financing is, is made available, then much more projects could also be uh, financed. Um, so it is doing well, but it could be even uh, much more. The second point is that the blending uh, activities and looking at these uh, uh, blending financing instruments is by no means a silver bu bullet. 
there are some projects that are not bankable projects, either because they are poor quality projects uh, or because they have a low impact on, uh, on poverty, uh, or simply because the market is not sufficiently developed. And so, in fact, for blending, you still need to have uh, a, a viable return on your investment. And if that's not the case, uh, then you need to have uh, to rely on, on, on grants and pure subsidies. So uh, to try to sometimes, uh, the feeling we had is that uh, trying to ask, sometimes we ask too much from the blending and imagining that uh, blending grant and, and, and uh, uh, leveraging private sector finance will be able to address all the problems in, in the energy and that's, that's not possible. Uh, which leads, in fact, uh, to, to the approach that I was mentioning before on, on the type of instruments that, that exist, uh, is that the external investment plan is trying to bring some coherence and a coherent approach to what the Commission has been doing in, in the past with this uh, focus on EFSD and the financing instruments to finance energy. The second pillar, which is more about technical assistance, both for project preparation and for policy reforms, and the third pillar, uh, that is about uh, uh, the regulatory environment. And so in its conception, in fact, the EIP is not especially new. The, probably the, the key new element is the risk uh, guarantee uh, dimensions that is contained under the FSD, and that could be very important uh, to finance sustainable energy in, in more risky uh, uh, environments, uh, like in sub-Saharan Africa. But the second main innovation is trying to coordinates these three pillars with these three approaches, instruments that the, the, the EU uh, has, in that, uh, has indeed um, at its disposal. Uh, and the EIP is probably not only one, is only one step since there will be activities also beyond the EIP. There are activities, as I mentioned, also that some of the DFIs will, will participate, but DFIs and, and, and multilateral investors are going to uh, have other initiatives. So there's also a point of trying to think beyond what the, the EIP is doing with the uh, other actors, and also what the EU is doing in terms of uh, grant support, including budget support uh, and, and grant project support uh, that does keep its relevance. Let me conclude by identifying some of the challenges and opportunities that, uh, that exist. Um, I think there's a question at the technical level I, I just mentioned of whether blending is, is really fit for, for purpose. It is, but it is fit for some purpose, not for all the purposes. Uh, and, and perhaps the question of, uh, in particular, reaching out to the poorest uh, part of the population in the, in the very remote uh, rural areas uh, where bankability is, is sometimes questionable, uh, trying to reach that and have that as an objective uh, for, for some of the blending facilities that might not be uh, a very good uh, issues. The second one is the question of uh, uh, reporting and criteria that are used by the uh, by these uh, uh, financing uh, uh, instruments and facilities that are put in place. Uh, and there's a very, first there's a range of criteria, so it seems to be multi-purpose, and again there's a question of can we with uh, one stone uh, kill so many birds? Uh, but there's also the question of whether the pressure that is put to show results, especially in the short term, uh, and to disburse the finance that is put in place, is that we're not screaming simply the, the, the best potential project and not investing enough on the more difficult type of, uh, uh, a type of innovation. So we know that we need to have a longer term pers uh, perspective. Uh, on, at the political level, I think there's uh, a, a need to take into consideration uh, the local context, uh, 
that are there. So there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all uh, approach. There is a need to take into account also the, the interest of, uh, of stakeholders, vested interests. Some will be in favor of access to energy, but you also have monopolistic situations. You have those that will uh, be affected by, by changes uh, to, to access to energy, and, and these also have to be explicitly taken into account. So the, the issue is not purely uh, a question of, uh, uh, of finding the right technical solutions, but it's also to, to try to better understand some of the local dynamics that, that exist. And the opportunities, of course, that Africa is really taking uh, the lead in, in, into addressing its own access to energy. So it is also important that the instruments that are put in place, uh, including at the European level, uh, harness very well what is done by the private sector and so respond to the needs of, uh, of the private sector, respond to what uh, or, or can also be coherent with the multilateral initiatives that are taking uh, that are uh, taking place, uh, but primarily that they respond to the local dynamics and that they rather try to enhance the instruments at the African level trying, rather than trying to substitute to what would happen. So the external investment plan is a, is a good step in that direction, and there are many other initiatives, but I think some of these dynamics have to be clearly taken into account if we want to be more effective. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sun, and sorry for the interruption at the beginning. I think that my colleagues wanted to give us a, a flavor of how a blackout should look like, probably. Uh, but uh, sorry for that. Uh, I would now like to open the, uh, the floor for questions and answers from our panelists. But uh, uh, first of all, I would like to seize the opportunity of being the moderator to ask uh, to our panelists the first, uh, uh, the first question. Uh, that really builds on what Sun just uh, illustrated and really focuses on the European potential contribution to, to fostering energy access in Africa. Because since we are in Brussels, I think it's very important to come up with some me clear messages to the European policymakers. If we look at Africa, we cannot avoid uh, to adopt a global perspective. There are other players in the world that are interested in following what happens in Africa. Of course, we know that China is a very coherent strategy in the continent. Uh, we know that the United States, uh, during the uh, Obama administration, created this initiative, Power Africa, to put the house in order and coordinate all the actions on Africa of the various uh, federal agencies plus the U.S. private sector. In Europe, we have this newly established EU external investment plan, but we have also the European Development Fund, the Africa Renewable Energy Initiative, the Africa Investment Facility, the Electrification Financing Initiative, the Global Energy Efficiency and Renewable Fund, the EU Africa Trust Investment Fund, the Investment Facility. These are just initiatives carried out by the European Commission. So. Is it time for Europe to put the house in order to streamline our action towards Africa in order to also have a bigger leverage in the field? Lapo, Laura, Alex. I think, uh, just a quick reaction, I think that the Juncker plan is a first step in this direction. I mean, I understand it's a way also to repackage some funds and to maybe end up a time of fragmentation that you mentioned before. 
Uh, it's clear that um, after a lot of uh, announcement and big debate about that, we are now looking at the details of the rules and we need to go into the details about the rules. Personally, if I have a message to, to send uh, to the EU uh, decision makers, uh, is about what I said and what Laura said about the uh, new uh, energy mix in Africa. Because it seems to me, frankly speaking and humbly speaking, that in the conventional conversation, there's a sort of uh, overlapping in the debate, but maybe sometimes even in the rules, that allow people to think that the future and the sustainable energy means only renewable energy. While we are talking about uh, a mix where renewable and gas go hand in hand. And if I look at the projects that are bankable and financeable by the European Bank of Investment and the World Bank, both of them are taking into consideration gas project as renewable project at the same level. Uh, the European Investment Bank has only a sort of technical criterion, which is about the level of emissions. It's a 550 grams for kilo, uh, CO2 for kilowatt hours. So if you are below the threshold, it's safe. If you are above the threshold, it's off. Uh, but that's, it's not an ideological debate. So I think that if you want to improve uh, the level of investment and the number of companies who could be on board, even in, the, in, the, in this Juncker plan, providing big projects, it's clear that the gas to power are substantially big project, uh, on grid and, and, and big project, you have to allow them to be in. And it seems to me now that the debate started in the good way but uh, in, in a number of uh, public meetings that we had with uh, uh, EU decision makers, there was still a doubt about that. So I would like that the EU would fit with the kind of conversation that the World Bank, to give an example, and the European Investment Bank has. Uh, if the, those three instruments are uh, in the same, uh, uh, at the same level, with the same rules, that would, e that would ease very much uh, the commitment and the work for, for the private sector. Thank you very much. Laura, would you like to add something on this? or Very, very quickly. That I think that sometimes we tend to think that when everything is uh, very coherent and well-organized and not fragmented, uh, things can <coughs> go better, but it's simply because we are able to grasp them better. I think that the push, in an ideological push to have everything organized under one umbrella that would go at the cost of speed and agility of uh, disbursing money and doing action on the ground would be a very counterproductive point of, way of, uh, of moving. So certainly a certain degree of organization is, uh, uh, is good and having an umbrella, but if this goes at the cost of imposing a hierarchy, imposing uh, um, and slowing down action on, on the ground, then we need to think, we need to think carefully. Um, the second point, uh, I think even the impression that today, uh, overwhelmingly, the debate is still very focused on electricity access, uh, regardless of how this electricity is produced, but we talk mostly about electricity. We very rarely hear talking about cooking, we very rarely, very rarely hear talking about productive uses. We very rarely hear talking about transport fuels. I think it's time to enlarge the conversation and broaden it from electricity to energy, 
too often we use electricity and energy interchangeably. They are not necessarily the same thing, especially if you talk about development. We are looking something broader than just electricity. Lex wanted to. Yeah, just just a, a small remark, perhaps um, less focusing on on your question about EU co coherent approach, because you know I, I would agree with Laura that whereas it makes sense to. to to have a coherent approach, it's, it shouldn't go at the the cost of uh, the speed of, of actually doing something. Um, but I'd, I'd like to um, make a remark on something that that Lapo said about the energy mix. Um, you know, I think in in an, in an unconstrained world where you have uh, sufficient uh, financing to to address each and every topic, um, you you indeed need to, to be very aware of that, that shift in, in, in energy mix. Um, I think where, where we are as, as a World Bank, we realize that what we have available as, as uh, potential financing uh, means, although sizable, it's still very limited compared to, to the overall needs. So we, we have to make choices. We have to see where can we have the most impact. Um, and in doing so, we are driven, of course, by the overall objectives of the bank of, of reducing poverty and, and energy access uh, plays, plays a, a big role there. Um, but there's also a strong focus in the bank on, on greening our investments where we can. Um, of course, that shouldn't go at the cost of um, the development of, of our clients, of the economies of, of our clients. So we will support them along a, a range of different uh, uh, aspects of, of the energy mix. Um, but it does mean that, uh, for example, if you look along the value chain, uh, where we see that uh, on the upstream side, particularly in, in, in oil and gas, um, it's much easier to, to raise private financing than in uh, the midstream or, or certain, uh, certain downstream areas. Um, and it's felt that we can make a stronger contribution there. Having said that, we, we still do um, make, make investments, lending equity in, in the upstream as well, uh, where, where that is required and where that's, that's justified. But choices need to be made, and uh, we need to look at where are the strengths, not only of ourselves, but also of others, to, to fit together in, in that overall picture. Thank you. Sam, would you like to... Yes. <coughs> well, I... I, I don't believe in a one-size-fits-all, and, and I think diversity and, and sometimes even competition is good. And as I w were trying to say, there are diversity of, of markets, a diversity of needs and contexts. So in, in that sense, to have different instruments is per se not, not a negative thing. I think the problem that uh, uh, some of the actors have, and, and in particular, I think uh, from the EU perspective, uh, in terms of uh, strategy and in terms of uh, uh, reaching out to the private sector, is... Uh, are there really such big differences in the different instruments? And, and I think, I mean, I, I avoided in my own presentation to go through this or listening. Simona, you did, you did it probably rightly so. But, but uh, indeed, there's this question, do we all understand exactly what are all, you know, all these dis different instruments about? And, and I think there's an element of, of repetition. So there might be, uh, from a strategic perspective, streamlining. The second one, and that's also a positive point of the external investment plan, is, is the idea of having a one-stop shop. 
shop for private sectors and, and those that are trying to look at, well, we want to get finance. Uh, and perhaps beyond the, the external investment plan is more than simply financing through the FSD, but if I understand correctly what the Commission wants to do is also to have with this one-stop shop to be able to do this mapping of all the different instruments and to be able then to direct the different projects or investors re required to the right institution. Now, um, that might lead to indeed some bureaucracy, or, or, but at the, at the, for the current... Uh, at the moment, for the private sector, it's sometimes very difficult to know at which door they should knock because there are so many institutions and they don't necessarily know what's the background of each of them. That was exactly the point. Laura, you wanted to say something? Very quickly on, um, on the point raised by the, by the World Bank on prioritization. I completely agree that there has to be prioritization made. The resources are always scarce, etc. However, having said that, uh, I, I think that Globally, we need to raise, especially the cooking part, at a much higher level. And when you're talking about overall investment needs, the cooking needs to provide clean cooking to all would be a tenth of what we're talking about uh, electricity. So it's not about the amount of money. It's about having a political understanding that this is a critical issue and that can be solved. And in fact, it could be solved much more easily than the electricity one, but it just doesn't get the attention. Uh, if you look at the numbers globally, uh, there are today 2.5 billion, 2.5 billion people that use a primitive way of cooking. If you look at the number today, if you look at the same number 15 years ago, it has not changed at all. Yeah, thanks. And this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning about this indoor air pollution problem, which is really important in Africa. So the, the, the human dimension of, of the issue is extremely big. Uh, I will now open the floor. We still have time for a couple of questions. So please just raise your hands. I saw a question there. So please. Um, thank you. First of all, uh, congratulations for the high quality of the presentation uh, and of the debate. I have a, a comment and three questions, if I may. The comment is first about the cost of uh, energy, as we heard. Very, too often, I think, we focus on the generation cost, and we are talking about access to energy. So we should better talk about the cost of the full value chain of the energy. It means production, transmission, distribution, and then access equipment and whatever is necessary to get the services supplied to the end users. Now three questions. The first one is uh, I am very pleased to hear the mix of renewables and gas, and that means no ideological debate about uh, zero carbon whatsoever. By the way, I would even add nuclear to, to that mix. What I am a bit surprised, I must confess, is to have hardly heard about hydropower. Thinking of Inga, 40 gigawatts. Thinking of the Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia thinking of a number of big and mainly also very small projects, little turbines here and there, 300 megawatts or even <coughs> 10 megawatts, which really, as you, may heard, as you may have heard about a project like in Virunga Park, is also a new way of going for development, uh, having the local population take ownership of the energy sources, and then getting slowly developed. So this is my first question. Hydropower. Where is hydropower in your mix? 
Second question is education and training. I have hardly heard about the need for education and training, especially training, also basic education, of course, whenever we go for technical assistance in, uh, in emerging countries. And we have heard many times, and I am very happy, the word long-term. Long-term is all about local training. And I wish we could have, even in the Commission, I myself, I used to work in the Commission many years ago, a, a kind of mandatory um, um, place in the contract for training whenever money is put in technical assistance. And the third, I was pleased to hear by, by San Bilan in particular about the lack of uh, impact evaluation. And my question is maybe a bit academic. I, I myself, I am now with the Belgian Academy of Sciences. Are there instruments for impact evaluation of um, international collaboration, especially in, in, in the energy domain in, uh, in Africa? I have heard of... Uh, uh, Polymy, for example, Milano has a team working on that. But by the way, Milano has the UNESCO chair. That is a, an idea maybe for the World Bank also. UNESCO is paying a number of chairs worldwide, focusing on um, improving technical assistance, not only from the engineering point of view, but also from the impact evaluation point of view. And I wish maybe European Commission, of course, but also other institutions, and maybe also private sector, could think of funding chairs in European and, of course, African universities to support uh, <coughs> the improvement of, of what we have uh, said. Thank you. Okay, that's Thank all. you very much. Thank you very much. I would then probably turn to Laura first, and then Lapo, Hydro, training issues. Maybe we can start with Very, this. very quickly, I'll take the, the, the Hydro one uh, on... Uh, when I showed the slide on the, on the power generation mix of the future, two, two elements. First, we see hydro in Africa as having been one of the key uh, success stories in mm. providing electricity access over, over the past, and we see mm. this remaining in the future. Having said this, there is a big however. Uh, the large hydro pro programs require very good regional cooperation. Yeah. Uh, in some instances, this uh, is going in the right direction. It's not always the case, so it adds a, uh, a layer of complication. Uh, the, I think, I personally think that the uh, Grand Renaissance uh, uh, this year, the moment uh, uh, the, the first electrons flow, it has to be hugely celebrated, really mm -hmm. hugely celebrated, uh, and recognized uh, mm -hmm. as a huge, huge, huge success. Um, so I, I, I really completely agree, uh, but it, it's, uh, it goes together with a big cultural shift uh, of, uh, of regional, uh, of, of breaking even more barriers than what, uh, what, we, what you're talking about now. Um, I, would, I would just stop here. Yeah, I have two comments, uh, really interesting questions. Uh, the first one is about assistance and uh, local impact. Just I mean, as a number, um, uh, we as ENI, I can tell you only about us, it's clear. Uh, we have as an average uh, in Africa 80% of, of our employees which are local. But in some kind, and I, and I think this has been also a sort of, uh, let's say, uh, not secret, but key factor of our success. As many times I've been asked about how can you run uh, power plants, gas in Libya, 
100% of our employees are Libyans. So the NOC is run by Libyans. They are working in their company. And so this gives you an explanation on why they are defending the, uh, the plans, they are working, they have a local community project which are run by the company, and so on and so forth. And in terms of high uh, skill education, uh, one of the big ideas uh, since the time of the founder of Enrico Mattei was to uh, recruit and train in Italy uh, the most promising uh, young people that were selected in the countries. Just a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, let's say, celebrated the graduation ceremony in Milano, the Master Medea, where we had the 80 graduates this year. 50 of them are coming outside Italy from Asia, from Africa, from 15 different countries. It's a way to uh, invest on the human capital, and it's really amazing. About hydropower, I agree on what Laura said, so I, 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 I want to make a comment, let's say, as a, an informed person. It's not about being any or, or whatever. Uh, it's about Gerd. It's interesting, but I would like to emphasize this issue here in Brussels, because one of the key points, uh, I would say, of the values pillar of the European Union has been moving uh, conflict resources in share resources, coal and iron, since the 50s. So this is the secret to try to communicate uh, to the regional context in Africa. Uh, the Nile is something uh, on which uh, Egyptians, since the time of Nasser, could wage a war to everybody. Nile is, I mean, is a myth in the identity of Egyptian people. And if you have to manage uh, not the one, not the first, but the third or the fourth big dam about the Blue Nile, if I'm not wrong. It's a six gigawatt project, 15,000 employees, workers, in the, uh, in, the, in the construction of a dam. But you have a, a, a crucial issue, which is the payback period. Because the, quicker, uh, the quickest pace you fill the basin, the most impacting is the consequence on the environment and on the river. So the Egyptian government, the Ethiopian government, to give it, to give just this piece of information, is paying upfront the whole investment with taxes. So if you um, move the window of payback to 15 years or 20 years because you, you need 15 years to fill the basin, you have a kind of financial curve. If you want to do it in five years, you stop the water, you fill the basin, but then you are destroying Egyptian agriculture. So this is the kind of political enigma or conundrum that you have to debate at the regional level. And you need a lot of cooperation, and I think that uh, Europeans could provide some historical expertise about that. Thank you. Lex? Yeah, very quickly. Thank you, Simone. Um, the, I fully support your observation about the need for, for education and training. And uh, in, in fact, one of the, the challenges that I mentioned uh, earlier in my intervention is, is around the, the lack of capacity uh, to, to properly govern the sector uh, in, in many countries. So um, as a World Bank, we spent an enormous amount of effort on, on capacity building projects. Um, we see ourselves not just as a bank with with financing uh, um, instruments, but also as a knowledge bank. So a lot of effort goes into that. Also, your, your point on impact evaluation is, is very astute. Um, sometimes very difficult to, to do so. 
I agree, and uh, perhaps we don't see it as often as, it's, as it should. Uh, still, a lot of very interesting work is going on in, in my organization, and if you visit our, our, our website, there's, there's loads of, of information on that topic that, that you can pick up. Sam? Yeah, just in two words, uh, just perhaps to stress the, the importance indeed of the regional dimension, uh, in particular in Africa, uh, where in, indeed the management of uh, water resources is, is often done at the regional level, and many of the regional organizations also have uh, energy power pool, and, and there will be no long-term solution to energy in Africa if we ignore the regional dimension. So that's what I was mentioning also, of the need to build on their own African initiatives also includes uh, in fact, the regional initiatives that are taken. So not to say they don't have their own problems, but I think it's to try to make them more effective that, and supports their endeavors that is really key uh, to achieve the, the, the energy. Thank you very much. I would ask just if there is another, but really one more question, very quick. Matteo. Thank you, Simone. Mr. Pistelli suggested that there are three players, like private investors, then the European Union and member states. Like, do do you do anybody in the panel see um, a model or a platform that can uh, be used to get those three players together? And Simone, you mentioned the EU Electrify Africa outputs in your paper. Is there anything to add on that? Well, I don't know if I already you also want to. I, I declare. I think it is really clear that uh, more coordination is needed, and uh, let's really hope that the Commission will use this EU External Investment Fund to really create this one-stop shop, which is really crucial for the investors to understand which kind of, of public support they can get. Because as it is today, the situation, to me, it looks very fragmented. It is very difficult to understand where to go to ask support. So having already a platform that can be even created within the UX and investment plan that can provide this information and a little bit redirect the request to the different existing facilities, that will be already something uh, really valuable. So let's hope and let's bring forward this message of, co of coordination to, to the Commission. Please, but then we just, have to just close. Yes. One word is that the external yeah. investment plan in its third pillar foresees this political dialogue yeah, yeah. and these possible platforms to have the various stakeholders at, at the country level. Indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to all of you and to our speakers particularly for having come. And